One of my favorite lines in all of the hymnal is in a hymn we sang earlier this evening. It is ascribed to the Genevan Psalter, the Strasbourg Psalter, before that, to John Calvin. I greet thee who my sure Redeemer art. And the last stanza states, Our hope is in no other save in thee. Our faith is built upon thy promise free. O oh, grant to us such stronger hope and sure that we can boldly conquer and endure. And one of the things that I want you to realize is, is that that hope has been the hope of all of God's people since Adam. It is not a Genevan hope. It's not an American hope. It's not a Presbyterian hope. It is a hope throughout all of the history of God's people in the Old and the New Testaments. And I mention that to you because this evening we are embarking on a new sermon series in which uh, we will attempt to show you the Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of the Old Testament. And this is important for us because it puts us in line with the great heroes of faith found in the pages of Scripture. That the same Messiah, the same Savior that you trust in, is the one whom David trusted in, and that Moses trusted in, and that Abraham trusted in. Now, it is a truth that in these New Testament times, we know more of the facts of that Savior. We know his mother's name. We know where he was born. We know his speech. But he is the same Savior of all of God's people throughout all of history. And so as we begin this series, Shadows of Christ in uh, the Old Testament, I will be beginning it in actually a New Testament passage. In the New Testament passage of Luke chapter 24, because it's in this passage that Jesus teaches us to go back to the Old Testament. And then in weeks to come, we will be throughout the Old Testament as our staff brings this series to you, as we bring you pictures and images of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. I'm actually going to begin at verse 13. It's a lengthy reading, but I believe it will help us to set the stage for the, not only this sermon, but the entire series. Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. 
and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon us. Lord, we come to you this evening. and We ask you to open up your word. Even as you opened up your word to those two travelers on the road to Emmaus. 
that you would show us, O Lord, that the Scriptures speak of you. That in the Scriptures we find hope and your promise and life itself. And so we ask this evening, Lord, that you would bind us together as your people in the great hope of the gospel. This we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. The Old Testament is important. We do ourselves a disservice if we ignore it. And that's because the Old Testament speaks of Jesus. That's what we're going to look at in this series. How Jesus appears in the pages of the Old Testament. And how that connects us with the saints of the Old Testament. And it connects us with the faith that has been once delivered to all the saints. This is especially important in our day and age because far too often... Christian churches ignore the Old Testament. They go to the New Testament and camp out there, as it were, in all the richness of the Gospels and the Epistles, the Acts, and even the book of Revelation, all of which are worthy and an aid to our faith. But we lack something if we fail to see how God has continually kept His promise over and over and over again in the Old Testament. You see, because to us, the New Testament is as much history as the Old Testament. And so the promises that we have in the Old Testament, we can see are sure because they are of one piece with the promises that have come to God's people ever since the very first chapters of Genesis. So what I would like us to see this evening in Luke chapter 24 is a setup for this Old Testament journey, if you will. As the Lord Jesus Christ marks out for us how we are to go to the Old Testament because it speaks of Him. The very first thing that we will see in the passage before us is a failure to see. That Jesus is with disciples and they fail to see what the Old Testament has prophesied of Jesus. And then secondly, we will see what is there to see. Jesus points out what is there to see. And then finally, we will see what we can see. Let's begin then by looking at a failure to see. This is a well-known story. It's recorded only in the Gospel of Luke. You won't find it in Matthew or Mark or John. And there is a great amount of detail in this story, if you notice it. There is a great amount of detail, exactly what they ate, what they were talking about, what they said, etc. And we know there were these two disciples going to Emmaus. And the detail is such that many scholars believe that the unnamed disciple, two men remember, one named Cleopas, that the unnamed disciple is actually Luke, the author of the gospel. Because this story is told at great length and in great detail. And these two disciples are on a journey. They are going home from Jerusalem. The Passover is over. Jesus has died. And we can imagine them walking home slowly, almost aimlessly. This is 
perhaps one of the saddest days of their life. They had hoped for great victory and joy. And they've seen Jesus of Nazareth crucified, dead, and buried. You might think about this in the same way if you've ever had the experience of walking home or going back home to an empty, lonely house. You know you need to go home, but you're not exactly excited about it. You aren't quick in your journey because you're not eager to reach the end. Now, they are aware of what is going on and what has happened. They're not walking in silence for all their sadness. They are talking about everything that has happened. And we see this in the text. They talked about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, his death, how the body was missing in the tomb. They don't need to be brought up to speed. They know everything that we know from the gospel accounts. And Jesus sees them, likely from a distance, and comes up to them. Now, they're lost in depression, and so they don't recognize Jesus. Now, this might seem absurd. They would have Jesus on the forefront of their minds. They would know Jesus well. Now, maybe it's their lack of faith that prevents them from seeing Jesus. Maybe God is preventing them from noticing that this is Jesus. Their eyes have been kept from seeing the reality. But I think we all understand that there are times in our lives when we become so absorbed with emotion that we miss all hope. And so Jesus then engages them. He says, what are these matters that you're talking about? Now, I want you to notice that Jesus didn't just come to talk with them. This is not casual conversation. Jesus knows what they're speaking of. He knows the import of it. He knows the effect it's having on them. And so he deliberately engages them in this conversation. And so the two men who are, we might imagine, in somewhat of a fog, look at Jesus and are dumbfounded. And they almost literally say, are you the only one that doesn't know what's going on? I mean, seriously, everyone knows what has happened these last few days. Are you a visitor that you are unaware of all that has happened in the last few days? And they actually, Luke tells us, stop in their tracks. They, verse 17, stood still. They are struck and overwhelmed with sadness. They think that there is no way out. And there's an irony here. Because they think that Jesus is the only one who doesn't know, and Jesus is the only one who does know exactly what the import of the events are. And then it begins all pouring out of them who Jesus is. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. He was put to death by the rulers. They said, we hoped he would redeem us. It had seemed so real. But now, it's lost. Three days have gone by. And you can imagine they had their own picture and their visage of what the Messiah was to be. How he was to redeem Israel. What that redemption would look like. And like so many in this day, even amongst Jesus' closest disciples, they had pictured a conquering king as a Messiah. 
And that hope is now dashed. He didn't conquer Rome. He didn't conquer the corrupt rulers. No, he was put to death. And so all seems lost. And the interesting thing is that they're still in this state, even though they know that the women have come and reported that the tomb is empty. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. We say each Easter, praise the Lord for the empty tomb. We even have our refrain, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Just saying that excites us and brings us joy. But not for them. They know the tomb is empty. They've heard the story of the angels. The disciples believe that Jesus is risen. When they come back, the description is that he has appeared to Simon. So why are they so discouraged? They're discouraged because they didn't understand the scriptures. If I can put it this way, they didn't know their Old Testament. If they had known their Old Testament, they would have known who the Messiah was to be and what he was to do, and they would be praising the Lord for the empty tomb. But for them, they had put together a picture in their mind of what the Messiah was to do, and he had failed. He hadn't conquered. He wasn't a reigning king. He wasn't what they expected. They failed to see. And so... We have to understand here what state they're in. And, and Jesus makes it clear. I don't think I am jumping to any conclusions here because Jesus responds with, with actually a rebuke in verse 25. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's saying, you don't know what the prophets have said. You don't know your Old Testament. Why are you being so foolish? And, and the words that Jesus uses here are not blunted in their force. We do see this over and over again, that Jesus is gentle. He is meek and mild, but he talks straight. He says, oh, foolish ones. And the word there actually means mindless people, unknowing people. If I were to put it, in our common vernacular, it would be something like, are you completely clueless? That's what he says. And then he says even more than that. He says, you are slow of heart. You are dull of heart. Your hearts are not affected by the scriptures. Your hearts are not affected by the, my ministry. You are discouraged and downcast, not just because of what you don't know, but because of how it affected your heart. He says, you have the prophets. They've spoken all along. And it was there all for you. Why did you not see it? This was not some passing reference. We don't have to dig through the prophets to find a statement about the Messiah. We don't need to use magical rubrics and math problems to find the right words in the right verses. In the right. No, it's all throughout, Jesus says. How did you miss all that the prophets had spoken? Well, they failed to see. But the second thing that we then notice is that it's there for them to see. God's word had spoken to them. 
If they had studied God's word, they should have expected Jesus' death. Because it had been told to them before. Because it was necessary. And because the glory of the Messiah would follow his death. This is what the scriptures teach. That the Messiah would come, that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would be victorious over death. Now let me ask you a question. Do you believe in the victory of God? Now that sounds like a simple question and you want to nod your head and say yes, but do you believe in the victory of God when the election goes the way you don't want it to? Or when you lose your job? Or when you get a bad report from the doctor? Or when you have a strained relationship with someone close to you? Do you believe that God is victorious? That Jesus wins? Because you see, it's easy for us to stand here in judgment of these two men. When far too often, we act just like them. When problems come our way, we throw up our hands and we say, there's no way this will work out. We don't know any way out of it. And so what Jesus does for them, and then by implication for us, is he opens up the Bible for them and shows them what is there for them to see. Now this is the joy of every preacher and hearer of God's word. Jesus opens up God's word in verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, I don't think that that means that Jesus read or recited to them every single verse of the entire Old Testament. But I do think what it means is, is that Jesus was all throughout the Old Testament. He was in Genesis. He was in Exodus. He was in Deuteronomy. He was in the Psalms. He was in the Proverbs. He was in 1 Kings. He was in 2 Samuel. He was in Isaiah. He was in Jeremiah. He was in Ezekiel. He was everywhere in the Old Testament. Because all of the Old Testament speaks of Jesus. It's not as if there's some portion of the Old Testament that tells us of the Messiah. And the rest is just fillers to make up our Bible. No, all of the scriptures speak of Jesus. And I can tell you that with absolute certainty. That is not a commentary. That is not a theological statement that is echoing the words of our Savior. That all of the Old Testament speaks of Him. And Jesus shows them and us that the Bible is Christ-centered. The Bible is not an advice book. The Bible is not a morality play. The Bible is not primarily about relationships. Now, the Bible contains morality. It contains advice about relationships. It contains these other elements. But the Bible is the story of Jesus. That's what he tells us. And it tells us also that the Bible is gospel-focused. Because the Bible is not just about esoteric facts about Jesus. How many things do you wish you knew about Jesus that aren't in the Bible? I don't think there's a parent alive that doesn't wish we had more Jesus material as a teenager. Because then we could turn to our teens and say, see, this is what Jesus did when he was a teen. You know, you should emulate that. But we only have these small vignettes. And all of what we have from Jesus is basically three years of his life. 
of his ministry. And it's not even all of his ministry. John tells us, we've heard this over and over again, that if he would have written all the things that Jesus would have done and said, the world couldn't hold the books that they would be in. So we have to understand that the Bible is not exhaustive and that's intentional. The Bible is there to show us Jesus and the Bible is there to bring us the gospel. The Bible speaks of Jesus. Not every verse... We don't go into every verse to try to find Jesus behind every rock or shrub or tree. But all of the meaning of the Bible is about Jesus. So, for example, in Genesis, it's Jesus that's behind the bruising of the serpent, the crushing of his head. It's Jesus that's behind Isaac and redemption. It's Jesus in Exodus who's the Passover lamb leading to redemption. It's Jesus in Leviticus behind the offering and the sacrificial system. It's Jesus in Numbers when the bronze serpent is lifted up. It's Jesus in Deuteronomy when the prophet speaks. It's Jesus in the Psalms in Psalm 22 when he is forsaken. And in Psalm 110 when it shouts the victory of Jesus. It's Jesus in the prophets in Isaiah 53 when the servant is crushed. And in Isaiah 55, when forgiveness is given out to all. It's Jesus in the book of Jonah and resurrection. It's Jesus in the book of Daniel, when the Son of Man comes to take his kingdom. Jesus is everywhere in the pages of the Old Testament. And there's actually an interesting point. I'm going to draw something in from this morning's sermon. You remember in John chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus says, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So what Jesus is telling us in John 6 is that no one has seen the Father, except the Son who's from the Father. He has seen him. And what does that mean? Have you thought about that? I think what it means is, is that in the Old Testament, where God appears, it's Jesus. When Moses is at the burning bush, it's Jesus. When Isaac sees the angels ascending and descending on the ladder, it's Jesus. When God wrestles with Isaac, when God renames Isaac, it's Jesus. Because Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the one who comes, the second person of the Trinity, who reveals God in all of his fullness. When Abraham is outside Sodom and the angels come, and there are three of them, and two angels go to Sodom and the third departs, that's Jesus. Over and over again we see the Lord Jesus Christ appearing, speaking, teaching. And all of this is to give us hope. One of my favorite verses is in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says, All of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Every promise of God finds its yes. So you can go home tonight and go through your Old Testament, read the Psalms, read the Proverbs, read the prophets, and everywhere that there's a promise of God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will teach you. My spirit will come upon you. 
I will give you everlasting life. Every promise of God has its yes in Jesus. And so you see, that's why Jesus has to be throughout the pages of the Old Testament, because he is the fulfillment of every promise of God. You see, the Bible is not just background material for us. It's life. Can you imagine how their pulses were racing as Jesus taught them? And I want you to notice that Jesus began with the Word of God. He brought them back to something they know that God had given. And so this discussion and the knowledge of the Scriptures changes everything for them. Now think about it. It's the same Jesus that's been with them on this whole journey. But now their eyes are opened to Jesus. And what opened them? Well, the Scriptures did. And how things have changed for them. Before they were wandering, they were aimless. They had no hope, no desire. But now their confusion is gone. Now they understand why the things that made them sad happened and had to happen. And so this is important for us as well because Jesus prepares us to go on in life. There are things that come into our life that are challenging and difficult. And the way that we can face them is by knowing that Jesus is in them, that he is behind them, that he has a purpose in them. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, everything is chaos and purposelessness. Some of you may have been following. You all know that I'm originally from Buffalo, New York, and there was uh, one of the players of the Buffalo Bills had a freak accident on the football field, and I don't know if he technically died and they brought him back to life or if he was just about dead, and with CPR they kept him from dying. And Because millions of people were watching this. And we could say, as many did say, how could this happen to a 24-year-old healthy man? What's the purpose for this? What's the reason for this? Well, I don't know all things, but I can tell you one thing. Millions of people were watching that. Millions of people watched other players pray for that young man. A sports network head on national television said, I don't know if I can do this, I don't know if it's right, but I'm not just going to talk about thoughts and prayers, I'm going to pray for this man right now. And the man has given a testimony of Christ, and people talk about what he's done for others, and how he has faith, and how he, he is bonded with his family, and people are talking and doing things. You know, there was a, a game that was played on Saturday where all of the players came together around the center of the field and prayed on one knee. You may be old enough to remember, as I did, when a player would take a knee and pray, they would be ostracized and criticized. Now everyone wants to do it. Do, do I know that every one of these persons is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? No, but that's not the point. The point is, the focus is on Jesus because of what has happened. That's what God does. And sometimes God does that by ruining your finances. Sometimes he does it by causing difficulty in your marriage. Sometimes he does it by wrecking your health. Because he wants your eyes to be fixed 
on Jesus. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. Well, the last thing that I want to open up for you from this text is what we see. What is Jesus saying to them is found in the scriptures. Now, of course, he's saying that he's found in the scriptures. But whenever we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, let me encourage you never to separate the person of Christ from the work of Christ. They go together. Because Jesus did not come to earth for anything but his work that he has accomplished. And he could only accomplish his work because of who he was. And so, what is the message that Jesus wants them and us to see in the Old Testament? Well, let's look at verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, stop and think about this here for a moment. Jesus is saying, I've already told you all this. And it's found in the scriptures. You should know this, that all of this had to be fulfilled. That this was the purpose of the incarnation. This was what Jesus has been telling them. And again, beginning with the scriptures, he tells them what they contain. And this phrase, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, is a shorthand way of saying all of the Old Testament. It's the entirety of what we would include in our Old Testament by categories. It's a threefold division. And what he says is, it was written in verse 46 that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And so what Jesus says the scriptures speak of is the necessity of Christ's work. That they speak of who Jesus is and what he came to do and why he must do it. We might think of Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God says that in the Old Testament. But remember, in the New Testament, it's interpreted in Luke 20 to remind us that that text tells us that the dead are raised because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, Jesus says. For all live to him. So it teaches us about the necessity of Christ's work to raise the dead. In Acts chapter 3 we read, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. That is found in the Old Testament. In Hosea chapter 6. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. I could do this all night. Because the Old Testament is filled with the stories of the work of Jesus. Paul even puts it this way in that famous passage in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus was buried and was raised on the third day, don't forget the last part, in accordance with the Scriptures. 
The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was in accordance with the Scriptures. And by that, Paul means the Old Testament. The psalmist writes in Psalm 16, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is the fullness of joy. Peter, when he preached on that great Pentecost day, said that he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, quoting David in the Psalms. So what Jesus tells us is that his work was necessary. And it was necessary for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. A turning from sin and a turning toward God. That that is prefigured over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Perhaps best in Isaiah chapter 55. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus says the scriptures speak of repentance but they also speak of the forgiveness of sins. That God pardons our sins. In Psalm 103, As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Now, I want you to stop and think for a moment of how abbreviated and lacking your understanding of the crucial doctrines of the faith would be without the Old Testament and the teaching of the work of Jesus Christ that he has come to accomplish and complete. This is what the Old Testament does for us. So what does it mean then for us tonight? We need to be aware of our own dullness. We can't treat the Old Testament as a closed book history of people long ago. The Old Testament is not for morality or for children's stories. The Old Testament is not second rate. The Old Testament was enough for Jesus to tell us to see. On this road to Emmaus, Romans was not written. Hebrews was not in existence. None of the Gospels had been written. But Jesus says... It's as plain as day before you because you have the Old Testament. So we, beloved, are to be whole Bible people. God has always had his plan. His plan has always been to redeem sinners through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. That plan was never in doubt. It could never fail. When we read the Old Testament, we see God marching his plan toward fulfillment. We see God giving us pictures and images of Jesus. And any time we can see Jesus, we should rejoice. Do you want to see more of Jesus? Then look in the Old Testament. Because Jesus is there. 